0: Now will you join me in prayer as we begin? Our gracious God, we thank You again for Your Word. It is so clear to us we are able by Your grace and by the illuminating work of Your Spirit to see things which in ancient times past were only mysteries, things not revealed in full. We thank You that we have the perspective of the New Covenant and the perspective of history, to be able to see in Your Word all the fulfillment that Christ brings to the promises and to the hope that was stated so long ago. It is our desire that You would, by that understanding, fill our hearts with joy, and may we obedient be obedient to Your Word. We pray that You give us insight and illumination and help us to see in Scripture our great Savior, and that we might love Him and be transformed and sanctified by Your truth and by Your grace. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. A couple of years ago, I watched a television program, and I know I don't usually start my sermons by telling you about a television program, but... Um, I'm not going to play it up here on the screen for you. Um, The name of this program, the the whole premise of the program actually was fascinating to me, and the the title of the program was Undercover Boss. I don't know if you've seen this or not, and I'll just briefly explain it. I watched one episode of it um, because it was sort of intriguing, but I could tell after one episode that basically this television program was going to be a formula. It was going to be the same thing every week with different people's names, but it was always going to be the same, and so I never watched one after that. The premise of the show is this, that they, they take a television crew and hidden cameras and all of that and they go into a, a big corporation or a big company that, where the people that are sort of the boots on the ground out in the field doing the work would never recognize the name or the face or the president of the company because there's so many layers of, you know, some su- supervisors between the man at the top and the people in the field. And, uh, he leaves his office and all of his assistants and that and he becomes an employee. They change his name and he sort of gets hired on as a, as a grunt-level employee underneath all of these supervisors, and he spends a week out working with all of the hoi polloi of his company, and he supposedly he's supposed to get a bit of an insight into what their struggles are and what they don't like about working for the company, and then as a boss he can go back to his position and make some changes for the company, for the bene, uh, in the company, for the benefit of the employees. That's that's sort of the premise. And the one episode I watched was with waste management, and I thought, well, this is intriguing because I thought maybe I'd see Ed, but Ed wasn't in the Ed wasn't in the program at all, actually. And uh, it was a fascinating thing, and it never dawned on me until this last week, that it is a great illustration of something. The president of the company, without ceasing to be president, leaves his position of power and prominence and all of his assistants and his attendants, and his position of authority, and for a brief period of time, he submits himself to the authority of other supervisors, people really that he is in charge of and that he is in complete control of. And he takes upon himself the form of an average employee or an average worker, just a servant. And he goes out and he lives and he works among the people. And at any point during that week of time, he he could really pull rank. He could reveal who he is, but he doesn't. He keeps it a secret for his own purposes and for the purposes of the show. And makes himself really of no reputation, taking the form of an employee and living among them for a period of time. Now most of you can already see where I'm going with that, right? Every analogy limps. I realize that, but in some ways that is a perfect analogy of what we mean when we, dis- when we talk about the eternal Son of God taking upon Himself flesh and coming here. The eternal Son never ceased to be God. He simply left His position of power and prominence and authority, and for His own purposes He took upon Himself the form of a servant, and He came in the likeness of men, and He submitted Himself to people whom he was really in control of for that period of time, and he endured the hostility of sinners and the contradiction of sinners and people that hated him and people that despised him without ever really truly showing them all of, his, all of who he was. He sort of put on human flesh, as it were, and came and lived and dwelt among us. He made himself of no reputation and he humbled himself. And now he's the perfect high priest because he knows exactly what it is to be a man. He knows exactly what it is to live among fallen humanity, just as you and I do. And we have been looking at the humanity of the Lord Jesus in this brief series that we're doing in Christmas time. We have seen Him born of a virgin. He was born a son. And we saw that He was born a king, a sovereign, last week. And this week we're going to see that unto us is born a sacrifice. And for that, you'll need to have your Bibles open to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. We're going to look at chapter 52, actually, verse 13 all the way through the end of chapter 53 this morning. Unto us is born a sacrifice. One of the dangers that is inherent in preaching through a series of texts that are familiar, like Isaiah 7, 14, uh, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7 that we looked at last week. Unto us is born, a, a, a child is born, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, etc. And now Isaiah 53, all of these are familiar passages. And one of the inherent challenges and I shouldn't say it's a challenge, it's actually just a liability, I realize that nothing that I have said in this series, or I should say little, if anything, that I have said during these last few weeks is truly new to you. These are familiar passages and familiar concepts, and I'm aware that as we go through this, very little, if anything, of what I said is truly novel or new. Um, It has come of no surprise to you that Jesus was born a virgin. It's no surprise to you that he was born the King of Israel. And today it's going to be no surprise to you that he died on a cross, Right? But I'm hoping that as we go through some of these fundamental and simple things which are familiar to us, even these familiar passages, that the Spirit of God might use these things to sort of uh, renew or refresh a love and an adoration for Christ and the great salvation that we have in our own hearts for our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's what we're doing in Isaiah 53. The passage that I chose for today, Isaiah 53, and the passage that I chose last week about him being born a king, the king of David, or the son of David, the king of the Jews, these two passages seem like they can't possibly go together. And it is a bit odd to us if we didn't have the if we didn't have the perspective of history and we didn't have the perspective of the New Testament, the New Covenant, and the New Testament revelation, we would be at a loss to explain how somebody could be born king of the Jews to reign and to rule forever and ever, and how somebody could be born a sacrifice to suffer and die and to be marred more than any other man. And prior to the cross. Every Jew would have considered that a mystery. Peter says that the the prophets searched diligently to, to find out what is this thing that they are describing. Isaiah himself had to wonder, how can this one be born as the servant of God? How can he be born to rule and be born to die? Well, from the perspective of history, we know how that's possible, right? It's the resurrection. We understand now that there is not one advent of this servant of God, not one coming of this divine Son, but two comings. One to suffer, one to reign. One to purchase the nations, and one to rule the nations. Two different Advent's. And we live in between those two comings. We look back upon his first coming when he suffered. We look forward to the second coming when he will come back to rule and to reign on the throne of David, as as the passage that we looked at last week predicted. So, we're looking now at the suffering. We looked last week at the, actually we looked at the second coming first last week. Today we're looking at the first coming second. We're going to look at how he can be born as a sacrifice in Isaiah 53. So we're going to—we already read the text, and I'm not going to read through the whole thing. We are going to work our way all the way through this text. It is difficult to read chapter 53 of Isaiah without seeing over and over again all of these allusions that you and I are familiar with in the New Testament, right? As we read through that, your mind probably thought of passages in the Gospels um, where these things are described, where the Gospel writers quote out of Isaiah 53 or allude to Isaiah 53. Peter does in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21-24. through 24. He talks about the manner in which Christ died, like a sheep before its shears, is silent. He opened not his mouth. It was not for his own sin. He quotes verse 9. In the book of Acts, actually, chapter 8 of the book of Acts, uh, Philip encounters the Ethiopian eunuch. Do you remember that? And he comes up into the chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch and guess what the eunuch is reading from? Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And this is what the eunuch was reading. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? And then you remember what the eunuch asked Philip? Is the prophet describing himself or someone else? That's what Philip. That's what the eunuch couldn't understand. Is Isaiah speaking of something that he did or is he describing someone else? And then Luke says that Philip, beginning with this passage, starting here, he preached to him Jesus out of the Old Testament. Can you think of a better passage of Scripture in all the Old Testament to preach Christ from, to get the Gospel from, than Isaiah chapter 53? You'd be hard-pressed to find one. This is Isaiah 53. This is the life, the rule, the reign, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, the intercession, and a study on the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ in more detail than you can find in almost any other single passage of the Old Testament. We're, I'm not going to be able, and I'll tell you this ahead of time, I'm not going to be able to deal with every phrase in Isaiah 53, but what we are going to do is we're going to work our way through the entire passage, and I want you to notice two things. Number one, that the death that Jesus died, He died as a man. The death that He died, He died as a man. Second, the death that He died, He died for men, for other men, or in other words, in the place of men. So we're going to talk today about substitutionary, atonement. Not your typical Christmas message, right? You could expect maybe something about some wise men, some kings, and some shepherds out in their field. Not today. Bloody substitutionary atonement. Unto us is born a sacrifice. So let's begin at verse fifty, chapter 52, verse 13. This is where the passage begins, and you'll notice that Isaiah refers to this coming one as my servant. Well, this is God speaking through Isaiah, and he is called my servant. Now to get a, an idea of what Isaiah means by servant and how the servant is described, you have to go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 42, and you will see all of these different what's called servant songs, where this servant and his ministry and his person and his character are all described from Isaiah 42 all the way through. And this is the last, the final, and kind of the most memorable of all of the servant psalm song, uh, servant songs that Isaiah has, beginning at verse 42. He is This Messiah is the servant of God. And in Isaiah, and this is interesting, in Isaiah, this servant is contrasted with Israel because Israel is called the servant of God in Isaiah. But guess what Israel did? Disobedience, rejection, rebellion, all etc. Israel, as the servant of God, failed. And here's Isaiah's point. This Messiah, as God's servant, will succeed. He will prosper in everything that God has sent him to do. He will perfectly fulfill all that uh, that Yahweh has sent him to accomplish. He will perfectly do all that God has given to him. He will yield nothing but perfect obedience to God so that God will be delighted in what this servant accomplishes. So this one is called the servant. And we know that this is the whole passage is a description of the life and the death of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Interesting that this section of Scripture... Which describes the utter humiliation of this servant would begin with the assurance or the promise that this servant will prosper and he will be highly exalted. Right? Again, another one of these seemingly contradictory ideas. The passage that describes his humiliation begins with the promise of his exaltation. There is no human being in all of human history who has been more exalted than Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because there is no individual in all of human history who has been more humbled or who humbled himself more than the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise of Scripture is God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, right? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Who has been more humbled than Jesus Christ? Who, being in the form of God, equal with the Father, stepped down out of heaven, humbled himself, took upon himself human flesh, came in the likeness of sinful flesh, came in appearance as a man, as a servant, and humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that is humility, right? Nobody has been more humbled or humbled himself more than this eternal divine Son. And consequently, God, therefore, has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those in heaven and earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Nobody has ever been more exalted because nobody has ever been more humbled than Jesus Christ. So this passage which describes the humiliation begins with this, my servant, In view of what you're about to read, this servant will be greatly exalted. That's how it begins. Verse 14. Just as many people were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Now verses 13 through 15 of chapter 52, these verses sort of encapsulate or speak in broad terms of everything that's going to be described in chapter 53. Isaiah is covering this. The humanity of this servant, his exaltation, his humiliation, his eventual reign and his rule, and all of this is encapsulated in verses 13-15. through Then in 53, all of this is sort of unpacked. It's stated in general terms in these first few verses. Then it is unpacked for the rest of Isaiah 53. This servant, verse 14, will be marred and his appearance will be marred more than any other man and his form more than the sons of man. And I want you just to notice there the description of his humanity. This is going to be somebody who is going to be marred. He is going to be abused. In fact, he is going to be disfigured more than any other man. So much so that people would marvel at his appearance. That's, this is the results of crucifixion. This servant is going to be exalted, but before he is exalted, he will be marred and he will be disfigured more than any men and more than any of the sons of men. Such was his suffering and his death. Now Isaiah is going to unpack what that suffering entails, what it what it contains in the rest of chapter 53. Look at the end of verse or look at verse 15. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. The word sprinkling there is kind of a Levitical or priesthood idea of providing cleansing. That was the idea of cleansing something. You sprinkled something, and this is exactly what he is describing here. This death, this man who is marred more than any other man, through this marring and through this disfigurement and what that entails, he is going to provide cleansing. For the nations. He is going to open up a fountain of cleansing, cleansing for sin, cleansing for the conscience, uh and an atonement that will provide atonement not just for the nation of Israel. In view in this death is many nations. He's going to purchase the nations. He's going to purchase the right to rule the nations. He's going to provide sprinkling, or he's going to sprinkle many nations. Verse 15 Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. This one who is disfigured and marred, this one who dies and suffers and is so ultimately humiliated, when he takes his stand among men, when he comes back to rule and reign, as we described last week from Isaiah 9, the kings of the earth will shut their mouths. When this disfigured, humiliated, rejected, despised man takes his place and rules and reigns, silence. All of the scorn, all of the mockery, all of the abuse will be completely silenced. Men will shut their mouths on account of him when they behold this servant ruling and reigning when God says in Psalm 2, I have installed my king on Mount Zion. The kings of the earth, the great men of the earth will be silenced. No more mockery. This describes his, his exaltation in the eyes of all people and that there will be no more humiliation, no more jeering or despising as is described later in Isaiah chapter 53. So this servant, he, the death that he dies, he dies as a man. This is the ordinariness I don't know if ordinariness is a word. If it's not, Merry Christmas, you have a new word for the coming year. This is the ordinariness of His humanity. He is a man. In every sense, He is a man. Remember, when we affirm His humanity, we are in no way minimizing that He is fully God at the same time. When we affirm His deity, we are in no way minimizing the truth that He is also full humanity. He is both God and man. Chapter 53, verse 1, Isaiah says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's a rhetorical question. And it is a question that states unbelief. He has described this man who will be exalted. He will be marred on account of him. Men will shut their mouths when they see him, when they behold him. He will be greatly exalted. But who has believed this message? Has anyone believed this message? This is a question that marvels at the presence of unbelief. After revealing all of this and what he's about to in chapter 53, all of this about this servant, Who has truly believed this? Ask yourselves that question. Who has believed this? In John chapter 12, this passage, Isaiah 53 verse 1, is quoted by John uh, as being fulfilled by the Jews who rejected Jesus. Right? They saw him. They saw his signs. It's after the resurrection of Lazarus. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. And yet they still are plotting the death of Lazarus and the plotting of the death of Jesus. And John quotes Isaiah 53. Who has believed this report? This is the one that Isaiah spoke of. And yet who has really believed? To whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who who among all of the people of his time understood who he truly was? Who has believed this message? You know, it's only a few. You realize that? Let me look around you. Most, if not everybody around you are believers. But in the scope of human history, is the way to heaven and through Jesus Christ, is it a narrow way or a broad way? Is it populated by many or by a few? It's relatively a few. Even after three years of ministry, how many people gathered in the upper room? In all of Jerusalem, 120. Who has believed this report? Very few people. Published as, as, as broadly and as widely as the gospel has been, on radio, on a television, and on print. It is out there. It is the most lovely and glorious and gracious message that mankind has ever been told. It is deserving and worthy of full acceptance. You would think that everybody in the world would embrace and would love this message of this servant who dies in the place of sinners, and yet who has believed it? Very few. Very few. And very few will believe it. Who has believed our report or understood that this message, this gospel, and this servant is the arm or power of God unto salvation revealed? Very few people. Verse 2, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. That that parched reference to parched ground might be a reference to two things. It might be that Isaiah is there describing the the region in which Jesus came out of, Nazareth, Uh, or of Galilee, which was a very arid region. It was in the north. It was drier, not lush, or anything like that, kind of a deserty region. It might be that he's describing his physical origins, the territory from which he comes, or it might be that Isaiah there is describing the lineage from which Jesus comes. Though Jesus came from the line of David, he was a descendant of David, of all of David's descendants, and there were multiplied thousands of them in the land of Israel, of all of David's descendants, you couldn't pick two more unlikely people to raise a king than Joseph and Mary. Of all the descendants of David, this family, Joseph's family, Mary's family, it's not the material for kings. Carpenter, a poor couple living in Nazareth. This couple, of all David's descendants, parched ground. Not the type of family, not the type of environment or lineage that kings come from. It's dry. But he will spring up like a root out of parched ground. And he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. There's nothing about him physically, visibly, that you would say, "Ah, oh, this, this is incarnate deity. Nothing about him like that. He was, listen, an ordinary Jew. An ordinary Jew. You're walking through the streets of Jerusalem, you step back and you stepped upon his foot, and you turned around and you saw Jesus, you would mistake him for just an ordinary Jew. No stately form, no majesty. Listen, he wore no halo, there was no bright aura or glow that shone off of His face. When He walked into the room, you didn't hear the singing of an angelic choir. You know, oh, I'm hearing angels sing. Jesus must have just walked into the building. Nothing like that. He was just an ordinary Jew. Commonplace. No, not majestic. In fact, if you had looked at Him during His day, you would have said, Him? a King? Right? That's how everybody assessed Him. Nothing unique about Him outwardly which was indicative of his real true nature no stately form no majesty nothing about him that we you would say this is the makings of a great king this is the messiah in fact that describes just his ordinary humanity and really it was because there was no stately form or majesty that we should desire him that explains or, or, or sort of sums up why the jews rejected him do you remember in John chapter 10 when he performed a good work and then he claimed to be equal with the Father and the Jews took up stones to stone him? And Jesus said, For which work are you going to stone me? Which good work are you, are you going to stone me for? And what did the Jews say? Not for any good work, but because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. This was why they rejected him. You, being a mere man, that was their assessment, make yourself out to be God. No stately form, no majesty, no majesty, Nothing about him outwardly that made them think, you know what, his claims to deity must be true because he has a halo. Or his face is bright. Or every time we see him, we hear the angels sing. This is, the, this, is, the, this, is this beauty about him. He looks kingly. Nothing like that. No stately form or majesty. Verse 3, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You're familiar with sorrow. That's describing really his acquaintance with sinful humanity. A sin brings sorrows. He was a man who knew sorrows. You remember he wept? He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over Lazarus' death and the unbelief. He was grieved over the unbelief of men. Uh, all the griefs and sorrows which sin brings, He bore. So He was a man acquainted with sorrows, and He was a man who was acquainted like, with grief. Like one from whom men hid their face, He was despised, and we did not esteem Him. The idea of hiding one's face from somebody like this, where you would just sort of shield yourself. And the idea is this. he, he, he had no He had no majesty that we would want to look upon Him or that we would be captivated by His fairness. Men wandered by Him and saw His humanity, and they didn't esteem Him. They just sort of turned their head away from Him. There was nothing that attracted people's attention about Him, so they would turn their faces away from Him. And even when He suffered, did anybody wander by and see His suffering or His hanging on the cross? Do you remember what the crowds did? They just wagged the head and kept passing by on their way into Jerusalem. They didn't stop by the roadside. They didn't say, why are you crucifying our Messiah? None of that. Everybody just turned their head. And his humanity, his glory, his claims, his teaching, his manifest beauty and majesty of his person, all of that went unnoticed as people turned their faces from him and just despised him. That was just a a symbol of, of despising somebody, turning away and not even giving them any attention or the attention that they deserved. So those first verses all the way down to chapter 53 verse 4 describe him dying as a man. The death that he died, he died as a man. Now I want you to notice in verses five or verse four, sorry, it's verse four, not verse. Yeah, verse four begins the next section. The death that he died, he died for others. He died for others. You are going to see in this whole passage. I want you to notice something. I want you to notice the language of substitution that is used all the way through this passage. It's not once or twice. This whole passage is an explanation of what substitutionary atonement is and what it means. In fact, I'm going to introduce you to three words. Most of you probably already know these. But these three words, without understanding these three words, the rest of this passage is going to be a mystery to you. You have to understand these three words. This is what this passage is teaching. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. Those three words. That is what Isaiah is going to describe. What do we mean by penal, substitutionary, atonement? By penal, we mean that what was suffered by Jesus actually paid a penalty. It was a just act of God. God in Christ was pouring out His wrath upon sinners, and Christ was actually paying a penalty. It was a penal sacrifice. A penalty was being paid, a just penalty for sin, so that the penalty for sin was laid upon Him. So it was a penal death. Jesus did not just die to demonstrate love. Oh, here's a man who died on a cross. Look how much God loves us. What a demonstration of love. No, not at all. Uh, the death of Christ did not just demonstrate what justice would look like if it were exacted. It wasn't just a picture of the justice of God. What happened on the cross was the payment of the actual penalty for sin. It was penal. Second, it was substitutionary. And by that, we mean that Jesus Christ did not die just as a, a martyr or a man for His principles, that on the cross, this person bore sin as a substitute for other men. It was a penal death and it was a substitutionary death. The death does not just show us the love of God. The death does not just make salvation possible. The death pays a penalty and that death pays the penalty in place of specific individuals so you and I can say, I was crucified with Christ because my penalty has been paid. He was my substitute. He stood in my place. It was penal, it was substitutionary, and it was atonement. And that means that it was a a payment for sin. It was a payment for sin. It's not just the penalty that was being paid, but it was actually sin which was being atoned for. In the death of Christ, we do not mean that he simply made salvation possible. And that now it's up to you and I to make it actual. That's not what we're describing. When we say that Christ died a penal substitutionary atonement, we are saying that He actually paid the penalty in the place of specific people and paid their penalty and atoned for their sin in toto, fully, all of it, past, present, and future. He bore the wrath for their sin. That's what's being described in Isaiah 53. Now, let's look at the language of substitution beginning at verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore... Notice the substitute. Whose griefs did he bear? Ours. right? Isaiah is speaking as a righteous one, as one whose sins have been forgiven. He bore our griefs. The griefs that are described in verse 3, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, whose sorrows did he bear? Our sorrows. Whose griefs did he bear? Our griefs. This is how he was a man acquainted with sorrows and griefs. Because he bore them. He took them himself. He paid for these. Our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. What does that mean? Isaiah there is describing the attitude of the Jews, or the attitude of the Jews toward this Jesus. When they looked upon him, suffering, hanging on a cross, under the curse of God, what was the Jews' assessment of him? He is stricken and smitten by God. He is afflicted by God. But why would they have said that he was afflicted by God? For his own sin. They accused him of blasphemy. They accused him of saying he was going to tear down the temple. They accused him of of putting himself in the position of Caesar as being a king. All of these, they said, were his sins. They called him a false teacher. They called him a a wine-bibber and a a friend of sinners. All of these things, they thought, were the curse of God upon him. It is for all of his own sins that he is suffering. So the Jews wandering by and seeing the, the thieves out on the roadside and Jesus hanging between those two thieves, they would have said he's being stricken and smitten by God and afflicted for his own sins. But Isaiah is saying it's not for his own sins that he was stricken. We esteemed him stricken by God for his own sins. But in actuality, it was our sins and our griefs that he himself was bearing. Verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Pierced, crushed, chastened, and scourging. All of this for whom? For us. That's penal, substitutionary atonement. He is paying a penalty. He is standing in the place of sinners. And He is atoning for sin. That is the death of Christ. The death of Him for us in our place. That is why we can say, I have been crucified with Christ. His death was for me. Not just generally speaking, oh, yeah, yeah, He died for everybody. No, listen. Specifically for me. He stood in my place. He bore my sin. Can Pharaoh in hell say that? Can Hitler say that Christ bore the wrath of God for him and for his sin? He cannot. But I can. Why? Because the Son of God was punished for me. That's personal. Not just general. Personal. It was my iniquity that he was punished for. It was for me that he suffered. My griefs. My sins, the chastening that brought me peace with God that fell upon him. God poured out everything on his son and treated his son like I deserve to be treated so that he could treat me like his son deserves to be treated. This is the great exchange. This is the gospel. He stood in the place of sinners and paid their penalty, atoned for their sin, so that God could show favor to his people because their sins have been taken away. His Their sins have been punished and been paid for. Verse 6, why was this necessary? Because all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Like hapless, helpless, hopeless, stupid sheep, we have wandered off in our own lusts, our own sins, our own our own iniquities, what seemed right to us as men. We pursued it and guess what? It ends in death. Right? We went our own way. We did our own thing. We have heaped up all of our iniquity. This is why this one must die. This is why the Lamb of God must take away the sin of the world because all of us like sheep have gone astray into our own thing. That is why He must bear our penalty and bear our sin. Verse 6, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Who caused this? Who caused this sacrifice to happen? Was this an accident of history? Was this the design of the Jewish leaders? Was God trying to resist this happening? Or did God cause all of this? This was the Father who caused this to happen. The death of Christ was no accident. The death of Christ was the predetermined plan, the predestined plan of God the Father from all of eternity to lay the sins of his people upon his son so that he could justify them and declare them righteous and sanctify them and purchase the people for his own possession. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. That describes the death of Christ, how he died. He didn't protest this unjust treatment. He didn't protest standing in the way of sinners because he knew that that's what he came to do. The man Christ Jesus, though being a man, he didn't protest this and say, no, 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 I don't deserve to die. He came as a willing sacrifice to bear the sins, and he went right to the slaughter because this is what it was designed for him to do. He could have delivered himself, but he didn't, because it was the plan and purpose of God for him to atone for sin. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. A little bit of an interpretive or or translational issue in verse 8. Verse 8, where it says, As for his generation, who considered? That, That could be translated, And who of his generation considered? The King James translates it, And who shall declare his generation? The ESV says, As for his generation, who considered? It's a rhetorical question. And the rhetorical question is intended to say this, Of all the people that were living at his time, his generation, those people were there. Who of them really truly knew and considered that this was why He came? Did the disciples understand this on the night of the arrest and the crucifixion? Did the disciples understand, oh, He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's coming to suffer and to die. Or were they discouraged? They didn't get it. Who among all of the Jews, who among all of the people living at the time, ever thought to themselves while all of this was going on in His life, this is why He came? This was the plan and the purpose of God. Who understood it? It's a rhetorical question. Did anybody understand it? Nobody did. God knew. It was God's mystery. But nobody alive at the time understood what was happening. All of this was revealed to them later. The disciples understood it later, after 40, 40 days after the resurrection. Then they, they started to catch on to what was going on. Then they understood it. Verse 7, by the way, is quoted by the Apostle Peter in First Peter chapter 2. Verse 9, His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. His grave was assigned with wicked men. That was the design of the Jews, right? How is it possible that in his death he could be with both wicked men and a rich man? How is that possible? How does somebody die with wicked men and yet be in his death with a rich man? We understand how that's possible, right? The resurrection. We understand that in the death of Christ he died with sinners. He died in the place of sinners and he died with the wicked to thieves but also he was with the rich man in his death. It was the intention of the Jews to hang him on a cross with thieves, to see his body put in a common grave, to be disposed of. They didn't care. He was assigned that death and yet in the providence of God he was with a rich man in his burial because Pilate turned the body of Jesus over to his disciples and they put him in Joseph of Arimathea's grave and Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. So on the, on, now we understand how both of those things could be true. But was it for his own sin that he died? Now look at the rest of verse 9. Sorry, verse 8. I flipped my page. Verse 9. Verse 9. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Did he do anything to deserve all this treatment that we have seen described? No. Isaiah is saying again, he did no violence. He did nothing to deserve this. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He did nothing. He said nothing to deserve this treatment. And this is Isaiah's way of wrapping it up and telling us this. It was not for his own sin that he died. It was for the sins of others. He died as a penal substitutionary atonement in the place of actual sinners. Verse 10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Look at that. The Lord was pleased to crush him. If I had a thousand years to sit and meditate on that phrase, I would never understand that. I understand what it means. I understand what it's saying. But I don't get that at all. That it pleased the Father to crush His Son for me. That pleased Him. Do you understand that? I understand what it's saying. I get what it's saying. But I cannot even begin to process that plan of God. That the Father was pleased to do this to His servant so that I could have eternal life. What did I deserve? Any of this? Do I deserve life? Do I deserve to live past a moment past my first sin? I don't. What do I deserve? Eternal wrath, eternal hell. But it pleased the Father to pour out all of His wrath upon this servant so that I could be justified. He would render Himself as a guilt offering. He will see His offspring. He will prolong His days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. How is it possible that He could die and yet see His offspring? That's spiritual offspring, by the way, not physical descendants. He will see His offspring. He will prolong His days. How can somebody who has suffered all of this and died as a guilt offering prolong his days when you were as a jew brought a guilt offering to the tabernacle or to the temple you saw the guilt offering die was its days prolonged no never how could this one die and yet prolong his days we understand that don't we resurrection and he sees his spiritual offspring look now we're back at where we started with the exaltation he will see his offspring he will prolong his days the good pleasure of the lord will prosper in his hand As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it, and he will be satisfied. The Son will look on the reward for his suffering, which is you and I, and he will see the reward, and he will be satisfied. The Son, for all of eternity, will not look at what he has purchased out of the nations, people from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation, all of this multitude, millions of people. He will not look upon his bride and all of the redeemed saints and say, it wasn't worth it. He will be satisfied. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will look upon his reward for his suffering and he will be satisfied with it. Be pleased with it. Just as it pleased the Lord to punish him, it will please the son when he receives the reward for all of his punishment and his suffering. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Whose iniquities are born, by the way, in the passage? It's the justified ones. He will justify the many. Not all men are justified. He will justify the many because He has borne their sins. What is the the ground of our justification? Justification means to be declared righteous in the sight of God. When God acquits the sinner and declares us righteous, though we still sin, He justifies the ungodly. When He justifies us, what is the ground of that? How can God be just and justify the sinner? How can God look at a sinner and say, No, not guilty, righteous. How can God do that? God can only do that because that sinner's sin has been atoned for. And if the sinner's sin has been atoned for, He is justified. God does not atone for sin and then not justify the person whose sins have been paid for. Nor does God pay for sin and then not justify that individual. If somebody is atoned for, their sins are forgiven. Forgiven, justified. This servant will justify his people because he has borne their sins. Because he died in our place, you and I can be forgiven and we are justified because he bore our sins. Men are not justified apart from that penal substitutionary atonement. And that penal substitutionary atonement is not taken in the place of men who are not justified. This is the ground of our justification. Therefore, Verse 12, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong. This is his victory. We're back now to exaltation, right? He is given the throne of his father David. He sits over that. He rules over a kingdom. This is his, uh, all of, death has been put under his feet. All of the elect have been gathered in. He has his people. All of us stand there and worship him around the throne. He gets all of that. All of the victories, the spoils of victories from his, uh, the spoils of his spiritual victories, I should say. All of that is given to him and it is given out to him and he disperses that to us. We share in His rule. We share in His reign. We get to enjoy all of that with Him as co-regents in His kingdom forever and ever. He divides all of that up for us. What he, has, what he has acquired and granted and given and purchased, He dispenses to His people because He poured out Himself to death. he did. He's able to do that because He has purchased the right to do this. He poured out Himself to death and He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore. He Himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That is penal substitutionary atonement. Now all of that happens because he is both God and man. It is necessary for him to be fully man in order to pay the price for sin, and it is necessary for him to be fully God to pay the price for sin. Penal substitutionary atonement requires a God-man to pay that price. And let me explain to you very quickly why that is. He had to be fully man in order to stand in the stead and in the place of men, because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't wash away sin. The blood of bulls and goats simply reminded people of the sin. It was offered over and over and over again. But it could never fully and really truly pay that penalty. All of those sacrifices merely pointed to the one sacrifice which did actually indeed atone for sin. But the bulls of blood and goats could not actually atone, could not actually pay the price for the sin. A man must die in the place of men. Not a goat, not a bull, not an ox. A man must die in the place of sinners. But one man cannot atone for the sins of a multitude, an untold multitude of sinners. So that man has to be both God and man. As God, he is, (coughs) as God, he is the infinite sacrifice for sin and the, his offering is infinite in its scope and power, in its power. It is infinite in its power to atone. So that if everybody in the world were to be saved, Jesus would not have had to suffer anymore because His death is not to be measured quantitatively, as in it was the number of strikes or the number of blows or the amount of, or the time of his suffering, but his death is to be measured qualitatively. It was the person who died which gives it its infinite value. It is the person who died that gives it its infinite value. He was man, so the death that he died, he died as a man. But he was also God, so that the death that he died, he died in the place of all people who will ever trust him for salvation. How much sin, how much value does the death of Christ have? It has enough value to pay for my millions of sins that I have and will commit over the course of my entire life. Millions of them, any one of which deserves eternal wrath. It has enough value to atone for all of those sins, not just for me, but for you and for any and all who will trust in Him for salvation. Every last person who trusts Christ for salvation will find that their sins were laid upon Him and punished on Him so that they could be justified in the sight of God. Now, if you are an unbeliever here today, let me tell you something. You have no sin-bearer before God. This is why Jesus is able to say, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and there is no one comes to the Father except through Me. His claims are exclusive. This is why there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved because there is nobody else who has paid penalty. Nobody else is atoned for sin. There's only one sin bearer. There's only one atonement that's been made. Only one person qualified to be both God and man to pay an infinite price for infinite sin for an untold multitude so that any and all who trust Him can come to salvation. It has to be one way. It has to be only through Christ. But if you are a believer, then I, t- then I ask you this, is there any greater news that you could ever hear in all of the world than what you've just read in Isaiah 53? Any greater news? That my sins... Have all been taken away. Every last one of them has been punished on a substitute. He is worthy of our praise, our adoration, our obedience, our affection, our entire lives. He is worthy of that because he stood in our place. It was a personal, penal, substitutionary atonement. He actually died for you. He actually died in your place. The wrath that I deserved was poured out on him so that God could give me his righteousness in exchange, not just that my sins are taken away. If my sins were all taken away, I would still have nothing to commend me before God. But all my sins have been taken away, and guess what? I have been given infinite righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. A righteousness that's not on the basis of law, but on the basis of what Christ has done. And that is what we memorialize, that's what we remember when we observe communion. We're going to take a few moments now, we're just going to examine our own hearts before the Lord as we close in prayer, and then we will partake of communion together. Let's pray. Our Father, only You could have devised so glorious a plan of salvation by which the sin of all Your people would be laid upon Your Son. When the angel appeared to Joseph, the angel promised that he would save his people from their sins. And that is our hope and that is our trust. It is in Christ and in Christ alone. If You had marked our sins, Lord, who could stand before You? We could not. Our sins are many. Our sins continue to be many. We are aware of them. We see them. We know them. And we know that even as those who have been justified by the Righteous One, that we continue to fail in so many ways that we are aware of and and unaware of. We just thank You for this sacrifice which atones for sins, all of them, all of our sins laid upon Him. Thank You, Father, that our justification does not rest upon what we can do, but only upon the work of Christ and Christ alone. And so as Your people, we do not look to what we can do or what we have done or what we might do to gain favor with You, but we thank You that our favor in Your sight and that You have shown us favor based upon what Your Son has done for us. That is our justification. That is our sanctification. That is our hope for eternal life. We confess to You our sin and our iniquity. We pray, O oh God, that You would cleanse us from our sin, create within us clean hearts as we look to You, and make us ever aware of the iniquity and the pride and the rebellion that still exists in the, the depths of our depraved hearts and in this nature and this body that which we are chained to. We ask that you would continue to cleanse us and sanctify us by your truth, that we'd be set apart and yield obedient and humble and lowly and loving lives to you. You are so worthy of all of this and so much more. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org.